first, uh, Matthew 24. It's a well-known verses probably for you guys, but it, I'll just read these. At verse 4, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And who's the ruler of the kingdoms on this earth, by the way? Satan. Satan. Right. And that's what we're going to get into today. Satan actually rules the nations and the people. He's the king... He's a prince of the power of the air. So fighting and uh, kingdoms rising against kingdoms, that's evil. That's hatred. That's murder. That's Satan, right? Uh, there will be famines and earthquakes, but all, things, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to the tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations. You will be hated by nations because the nations are run by Satan. And Satan hates God. He hates Jesus. He hates Christians. Be hated by nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. That's Christians endure because God gives us the ability to endure. We're saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So I think based on what Shane taught us this morning, this is a Christian's. All the way to the end, we preach the gospel. We preach the truth. We are witnesses for Christ. The world around us will crumble because it's ruled by Satan and it's temporary, and that's just the way it goes. So... I think with this ruling that Shane talked about, with the gay marriage being legal, our response should sort of be, well, I mean, that fits. That fits what we see around us. This world is evil. That fits. And our job is to be a light and not to be darkness and not to show hatred and, and all these things that Shane mentioned today. So I think it fits. And especially when Shane talked about the way Rome was, man, back when Paul was around and Jesus was around, and those people were very extremely wicked and debauched and immoral. And you don't see Paul saying, go change the Roman laws. Go fight to change the Roman laws because they're godless. No, he said, obey the laws and be a light and proclaim the truth. So, great truth. And I also wanted to read real quick before we get to it, uh, Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations in an uproar? and the peoples devising a, vain, devising a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. So another picture of what the kingdoms of the world do. They don't want to follow his anointed. They want to reject him. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. So God's in control. No matter what they do, he, he's, they're nothing to him. He, he will use them for whatever purpose he has. Then he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. 
I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warnings, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that he not become angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So I, I just thought of those two verses uh, to set the stage for what we're going to study today, which is um, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. And if you want to go ahead and flip there, I'll, I'll read those 20 verses. And just for your reference, so you know, you may want to, as I'm getting ready, Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 8 are the parallel accounts. We will flip back and forth a little bit because those passages sort of supplement some of what Mark talks about this demoniac. Um, so, as you know, uh, Mark, the fast-paced gospel, vivid, technicolor description of Jesus' ministry, uh, also mentions demons a lot. All the Gospels mention the activity of demons, but Mark uh, more than the others. And this section of Mark, these 20 verses, describe this um, fascinating, really riveting description of a demoniac. It is, uh, it's evil. It, um very descriptive, it's gripping, it's, it's just an amazing, really, story of a demoniac. And you can learn a lot about demons just from these 20 verses. Uh, in the whole Bible, these 20 verses describe uh, demonic possession more than anywhere else. So if you want to study demonic possession, these are the 20 verses you go to, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 to 20. And so already in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, Satan, of course, tempted Jesus. We encounter the ultimate demon, Satan. He's the ruler of all the demons. A few verses later in chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, the first uh, real miracle Jesus performs in Mark is casting this demon out of this man in the synagogue. And the man in the synagogue says to Jesus, what do you have with us? I know who you are, Jesus, the Son of God. All right, so second encounter with, with the demons is in chapter 1. A couple of verses later, it says that uh, Jesus healed many and cast out many demons. Chapter 3, we read about uh, verse 11. It says, Whenever the unclean spirits would see him, they would fall down before him and cry out, You are the Son of God. So already you have five different encounters in just these first, really, three chapters of Mark where we encounter the demons. And this speaks to the fact that when Jesus was on earth, that's when the devil got busy. That's when there was a heightened uh, activity of all the demons and devil's work. So we're going to read today, um, let me just read the 20 verses. And as I read them, pay attention to the, um, the nature of this poor man who is possessed. Pay attention to how evil Satan and the demons really are in what they do to this man. Pay attention to what the devil or the demons do when they encounter Jesus. And then also at the end, pay attention to the response of the people. A fascinating end to this section, how the people respond to Jesus' exorcism of this demon. So let me go ahead and read these 20 verses. 
they came, oh, by the way, this is after, let me read the end of chapter 4. Remember, uh, Jesus was in the boat with his disciples and a huge storm came and they were scared literally to death. They were seasoned sailors and the storm came and they were, they were just, it was a horrible storm, scared to death. And Jesus basically speaks and instantly the wind, the waves, to stop. And in verse 40 of chapter 4, Jesus says to them, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? They became very much afraid. Okay, so they're more afraid when they are encountering God, who is able to stop the sea and the wind. They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we'll see in this verse, who else obeys him? So, Chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Oh, and they became frightened. So they see the man sitting there, healed, quiet, and then they become frightened. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Okay, so this is, again, the most comprehensive account of demon possession in the whole Bible. And we can learn a lot about demon possession, which, by the way, I don't think happens that much anymore. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he put a lid on Satan. It still happens but not like it did when Jesus was around. And you read the Gospels and you see all kinds of demons being cast out. But nevertheless, this is really the most thorough treatment of demon possession. You know, um, Jesus came to conquer Satan. 
And it says in 1 John 3, 8, the one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Sounds like the, one of the main reasons he came was to destroy the devil's work here on earth. John 12, verse 31 says, Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. So like I said before, the ruler of the world, believe it or not, is the devil. That's why it shouldn't surprise us when we have laws that get passed that are debauched and against what we think is moral and right and biblical because the ruler of the world is the devil. And if I am lifted up from earth, all and I, if I am lifted up from earth, so when Jesus rises again, he will draw all men to himself, to myself. So Jesus came to conquer Satan. That's the first thing I want us to remember. Second thing is Jesus rescued us from Satan's domain. So even though he's a ruler of the earth, the Christians are not ruled by Satan because Jesus rescued us. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to who? The prince of the power of the air. So we walked according to the world. This is Satan's domain. He's the prince of the power of the air. And we formally walked according to that. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So Satan still has a lot of influence over people who aren't Christians. And we'll read later, Satan is the author of lies. That's his main way of steering people, even Christians, aside is by deceit and lying. But uh, he still uh, works, especially in the sons of disobedience which is different than demon possession. So that's a thing I want to point out. There's demon possession, which we'll read about here, and then there's the influence of Satan on earth, which he still does. He still is able to deceive people and lead us into a lie. I think after today's sermon, uh, a lie for, that Christians follow, we Christians follow, is that um, when they're coming to the political stuff, that somehow earth is good. And we're to make it good. And we're to use good laws to make it good. That's sort of a lie because the earth is bad. The prince of the power of the air rules. And so when we see rulings in politicians and things that go south against what the Christian believes, we have an opportunity to be more of a shining light in a dark place. And these things Shane talked about, we show love and kindness and mercy and it's the mission field for us and we pray for them and we proclaim the truth, but we don't become these clanging cymbals and gongs and screeching and the talk radio whole thing. That isn't Christ. Christ wouldn't do that. Paul wouldn't do that. So I see it um, properly that Christians are separate in the domain of earth and of kingdoms and rulers is Satan. I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but, but God created Satan. So God uses Satan and the demons and everything for his own purpose. I mean, Satan seemed to win at the cross, right? God let Satan win that little victory. But ultimately, he didn't win because he crushed his head when he rose again, right? So it's difficult to understand, but I think uh, it is important to understand God created Satan and he knows what he's doing, and he lets him do certain things. 
Uh, one more verse I just want to point out before we get into the text. Colossians 1.13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Okay, so to get to the text, uh, I think what I'd like to do is uh, go through it verse by verse and then punctuate it with some summaries about what we see about the, uh, the demon-possessed man. And then at the end, I want to recap actually some of the other biblical texts which talk about where Satan came from, when did he, was he kicked out of heaven, how does he rule. There's a lot of verses in Revelation, Ezekiel, and Isaiah which talk about um, Satan and when he was uh, banished from heaven to earth, and that, but we'll do that at the end if we have time. So first thing to note in, in verse 1 is there's some controversy. You know, this count, country of the Gerasenes, if you look at um, Matthew and Luke's account of this, the cities don't match up because um, Matthew says that they came to the country of the Gadarenes. Mark says uh, the Gerasenes. Luke says the Gerasenes. The fact of the matter is, if you look at your maps, uh, the Gadara, which is mentioned in Matthew, is a city that's probably 30 or so miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. All right? So it, he, they can't be there because we know the swine run down the hill and jump in the sea. Um, but not to make too long a story of it, basically it would be like um, the country of Gadara would be like New York, or the county, Cherokee County would be where they were, all right? And then Woodstock is in Cherokee County. So they might call something in Woodstock, he was in the country of Cherokee County, but really they meant Woodstock. So basically what he's describing here in Mark is more like a, like a particular town versus the overall larger area of Gadara. I just mentioned that because some people think these are two different accounts, of two different demons encounters, but they're the same. And... Um, I want to read, let me read these verses again to describe the demoniac. He got out of the boat. Immediately the man from the tombs, unclean spirit, met him. By the way, unclean spirit is synonymous with demon possession. And in the New Testament, it talks about unclean spirits, evil spirits, and um, demon possession. Demons are mentioned 63 times in the New Testament, evil spirits six times, and unclean spirits 23 times. So if you add those all up, you've got... Uh, God telling us about different spirits, 90 different word times this word is used. Now, that's not 90 different encounters with spirits, but because sometimes the same encounter you have the word used many times. But the point I'm making is you have a lot of demonic activity in the New Testament. Um, so he has this unclean spirit, and he meets him, and it says his dwelling is among the tombs. So just think about right from the get-go. Uh, he's living in the tombs. What are tombs? Well... These tombs were outside of civilization. They're in the country. And a tomb is basically where they bury dead people. Right? So he's living. Satan has this guy banished out to the tombs. It's dark in a tomb. It's damp. It's cold. It's rocks. It's death. Right? So you have this image of this is, this is Satan for you. Right? He's dark. He's death. He banishes a guy. He's an antisocial fella out there in these tombs. And you'll read later, apparently they liked it there because it says, don't send us from here. So they yeah. like this area of the tombs. 
uh, about the fella. No one is able to bind him, even with a chain. So the demon, well, it's actually not one demon. It's at least probably 2,000 demons. But a lots, thousands of demons are inside this guy. And uh, so they give him somehow supernatural strength. So much so that they, these chains, they keep binding him with these chains and he just breaks them. They, they can't contain him. You know, in these days when you have people that are sort of like the demon-possessed, um, straitjackets, right? You have people that are psychotic and really violently crazy and we would put them in a straitjacket. Don't do it so much anymore, but a straitjacket in a rubber room and that's how you sort of deal with them. Well, this, I guess, was their version of that. They just could not contain this guy. He was crazy. He was demon-possessed. Um, and they just let him live in the tombs and tried to shackle him, and it didn't really work very well. No one was able to bind him, even with a chain. In Matthew, it says that he was so exceedingly violent, violent that no one could pass by. So he's not only like chained up in the tombs, he's exceedingly violent, scaring people half to death when they walk by. That's how bad this guy was. And in fact, in Matthew, uh, it talks about two men. So it, when, if you read Matthew chapter 8, Verse 28, I'm just going to flip there real quick. It says, you don't have to go there, but I'll just read it. It says, when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, the two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. So, doesn't mean that these are two different accounts. And some people will criticize this and say, well, two different accounts. Or the Bible's not accurate, because here there's two and here there's one. No, it's the same account. Mark just happens to talk about sort of the, the main guy, but there was obviously another one there, and Mark just doesn't describe him, but Matthew does. So Mark says, or Matthew says there were two men. This one was so exceedingly violent, no one could pass by. Um, he tears these shackles apart. They're torn apart in pieces. No one is strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, here's the other thing, night and day he's screaming. And that word screaming in Greek, I don't know what it is, but basically he is screeching a horrific scream constantly, day and night, in the tombs, in the mountains, gashing himself with stones. So he's mutilating himself with his rocks. He's cutting himself up. So you get the picture, right? Um, because, well, you get the picture of, of a madman like you've never seen, Right? and like no one else has ever seen, and it is really in the extreme. Luke actually says that he was naked, all right? It said, Luke chapter 8, he was naked from the city, and he had not put on any clothing for a long time, and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. And then Luke also adds, he was bound with chains and kept guard. So they had some kind of people there trying their best to contain this crazy, mutilated, naked, dirty, Demon-possessed guy living in these cold, dark, ragged death chambers. So you get the picture, right? This is pretty extreme demon possession. And uh, so the first point we want to make is that uh, you see the destructive power of demons, what they can do to a person. Antisocial, I've got some words listed here. Isolated, living in the dark. Image of death everywhere, bound with chains, violent, strong, superhuman strength, almost inhuman. He's suffering, he's dirty, naked, mutilated, loud, violent, inhuman possession. Obviously, no one wanted anything to do with this guy, right? No one wanted, I mean, I wouldn't want to get near him at all. No one wanted to. So, that's who encounters Jesus.
He says, uh, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down. I think some other versions might say worshipped him. Uh, the original word is proskeo, which does mean worship or to prostrate yourself before someone or show reverence. And I think MacArthur points this out, and it's obviously accurate. Uh, basically, at this point, the demon is in a panic. He is in panic mode because he sees Jesus coming his way. He's not bowing down, repenting, and worshiping him. He, he is scared out of his mind because the God of heaven is showing up. And he must know him, right? This is the demon that knows Jesus, not, not the demoniac, the poor guy that's possessed, but the demon knows him because he's already probably encountered him before. I mean, the devil tempted him uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and I'm sure they communicated with each other in the spiritual realm. They talked to each other, and sort of the, the word was out. The email sort of went out, and they all knew, you know, Jesus is here, guys. Time is upon us. Um, he didn't fall for my temptation. He's, he's in Galilee. You know, so they knew. These, these guys do have um, spiritual knowledge that we don't have. So clearly, they, they know that God and Jesus is coming towards them, and he's in a panic. He's not repentant. So he runs up and he bows down before him and uh, he shouts with a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? So another indication, he knows exactly who Jesus is. And it is one of the ironic points in Mark. It seems like, especially the first half of Mark, the devil and the demons are the only ones that really know what's happening. The apostles don't really know much, but the devils for sure know what's going on. So he asks them, what business do we have, son of the most high God? And this is, by the way, the same statement that they said earlier in Mark when Jesus met the fellow who was demon-possessed in the synagogue. He says, what business do I have with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? Same statement. So um, point here, the demons do not deny Jesus' deity at all. They don't deny it. They know it. They acknowledge it. In Luke, uh, when the demon-possessed man goes up to Jesus, Luke records that they say, let me find it, Luke chapter 8, verse 31, the demon says, they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. So this adds a little more flavor to what the demons at this point are probably thinking about, which is what? When they say, don't, don't send us into the abyss. <coughs> Any ideas what they mean by that? Yeah, right. And it adds flavor to what the thinking of the final time because they know this lake of fire is waiting for them in the end. And I can't remember the exact verse, but um, basically they know they're here temporarily. They know that they're cast on earth for a temporary time, and ultimately they're going to have final destruction in this lake of fire. So when they ask, what business do we have with each other, Jesus? They're probably asking, uh, 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 why are you here already? Why are you already here? Because we know the way things pan out. And MacArthur mentions that these guys have great uh, eschatology. He says they know. They know a lot more than we do. They're very smart. They know the Bible better than us. They know when their end time is coming and how it's going to end. So they're sort of asking him probably here in a panic, why are you here now? Don't torment me yet. Don't torment me. Are you going to send us into the abyss now? That's what they're asking. Which is why they're relieved when they go into the pigs. They're pretty happy about that compared to going into the abyss. So they think they're probably at this point 
possibly going to be sent into this lake of fire. By the way, it's Revelation. If you want to read up, it's 19 and 20. is where you can read up on where the uh, demons end up in this lake of fire. They end up there with, this, with the false prophet. So they think they're going to the abyss, but not yet. Um, yeah, Matthew 25, 41, by the way. It says, then he will also say, this is about their final destruction, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So it reinforces that fact. The Bible teaches where they're going to end up. So they prefer something else other than the abyss. Verse 8 Jesus, it says, for he had been saying to him, oh, by the way, when, when they implore him, it's like they're almost commanding Jesus, don't torment me. I implore you by God. It's like, I swear by God, don't torment me. It's like this hubris that these guys have. Even though they know God is there, they're assuming the role as if they can tell Jesus what to do, right? I swear by God, don't torment us. Because Jesus had been saying to them, come out of me, you unclean spirit. And then Jesus asked them his name, and some people take this like uh, about exorcisms, by the way. Um, at this time, a lot of Jewish scribes and Pharisees and teachers thought that they could exorcise demons. They had some rites that they would do to exorcise demons out of people. Not biblical um, they weren't mandated biblically on how to do this because there's no teaching in the Bible how to exercise a demon. There isn't any. It's not in there. We'll get to that in a minute, too, about who can exercise demons. But even today, like in a Catholic church, in fact, early on in the Catholic church, this was pretty prominent. They had these rites and these rituals of how to exercise demons. And apparently, one thing that um, was necessary to exercise a demon was to ask it its name. And if it told you its name, then somehow you had the upper hand on it, and you could then start this exorcism process. So some people have taken, well, may have used this as a part of that, you know, godless right. All that to say, Jesus doesn't need to know his name. This is almost rhetorical, right? I mean, Jesus knows who, about the demons, but the point is he does ask him his name. He says, what is your name? And people say, well, why did Jesus ask him that? It's like, I don't know exactly, but it may be to display to the people around him that he's going to show them, okay, this guy's possessed with a 1,000, 2,000 demons, and I have authority over that many demons, and you're going to see it. So that may be the reason that seems to make the most sense to me. He was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. That's like a haunting. It's like scary, right? It's like, wow. I mean, it really makes you step back. I am Legion. We are many. Um, and all the people heard it. And it reminds us that still today there are, are thousands of demons out there. don't know where they are, but they're around, and there's many of them. And legion meant 6,000 Roman soldiers. That was literally what the word meant at that time. Uh, doesn't mean necessarily that there were 6,000 exactly, but the point is that there were a lot, the thousands of demons inside this one man. And he began, verse 10, to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. So apparently they liked it there. They were comfortable in these tombs. Uh, another thought on that is this is a Gentile area. And the pigs, of course, is one hint that we know that is Gentile because the Jews wouldn't be near pigs. But there were Hellenized Jews probably that lived there. And some of them may have compromised and 
found that there was money to be made selling meat, and they may have had been the farmers or the pigs, but <laughs> I can't. Right. That <laughs> uh, would be my first uh, compromise as a Jew. Uh-huh. Even out in the sea, digging up the dead ones and saying, I got some free meat here. <laughs> uh, so, uh, it's always great, Randy, when you're here. Really. I like it. Um, where was I? So, Gentile, thank you, Kay. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Kay. <laughs> Gentile, the point being, the, it just we could think about the reason Satan liked it there, but it seemed obvious, you know, the setting was interesting, Gentiles there, and they would have prevented them from ever knowing about God and lying and could live in sort of unmolested there in that area. But the point is, they, they didn't want to move. They were pretty happy there. They, they earnestly implored Jesus, don't send us out of this area. We like it here. You know, they may, speculation, but you know, they knew that Jesus' ministry was going to explode from just primarily the Jews, historically, into the whole world, right? And that's what's going to the Gentiles. So maybe they were setting up camp there, I don't know, to, to prevent that explosion of his ministry but the point is they, they didn't want to leave it says now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby in the mountain the demons implored him saying send us into the swine so that we may enter them and there's speculation about that too why would they ask to go there I, I don't know that Jesus is giving them what they want but it is interesting that Jesus does sort of mercifully send them into the swine instead of somewhere else but I don't think there's much more to say about that, except that uh, Jesus decides to go ahead and give them permission to head into these uh, 2,000 swine that are there. Um, and by the way, at this point, you know, from verse 7 on, obviously Jesus is speaking to the demons, not to the man whose vocal cords they're using, right? He's speaking directly to the demons. Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And Jesus gave them permission, and coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. So no one saw the spirits leave. They just saw the swine start acting crazy and running into the sea, right? The spirits are spirits. They're not visible. We can't see them. They're invisible. They're in the spiritual realms. But somehow, ghost-like, they entered into the swine and caused this herd to rush down the bank and into the sea and drown, about 2,000 of them. And they were drowned in the sea. So, the um, point here, one main point, is that Jesus has divine power over all the spirits. And uh, he made them in the beginning of time, before he made man. Actually, he made these spiritual beings. beings. Jesus himself, with God, made the, de- the angels, actually. They're angels in heaven. And one of those angels, Satan, was cast out. There was a war in heaven. And we can read about that in... Uh, Revelation 12, we might get to it in a minute. And essentially, they cast out Satan into earth. And actually, he was in the Garden of Eden, we know, in Genesis 3.15, and took the form of a serpent and tempted Eve and uh, was told at that point, what was he told? Even at the very beginning of man's creation. Anyone remember 3.15? 
Thomas Gospel. Yeah. Yeah, Eve's seed is going to crush his head and he'll bruise his heel. So the bruising on his heel was when he died on the cross. But when Jesus rose again, he crushed Satan. So even though they think uh, maybe that ultimately when Jesus died, they had victory, of course they didn't. That was their defeat. We'll get to that hopefully in a few minutes. But the, uh, So Jesus had divine power over the demons. He made them at the resurrection. Jesus didn't thoroughly disarm them, but mostly disarmed the power of demons. And this demonic activity, I believe, that was really hyper-present during Jesus' time, really died down. And you don't read, interestingly, if you read the epistles and Acts, you don't, well, first of all, there's no instruction on uh, how to exercise demons for the rest of us, for the churches. Uh, he did um, give authority, of course, to the apostles, to cast out demons. You read that a lot in the Gospels, but you don't read it in Acts. There's one scene in Acts 19 um, where the sons of Sceva, uh, we'll get to that in a minute because it's a really interesting story, but basically the demons say to these, these guys that are pretending to be of Paul and of Jesus, they're trying to cast out demons, and they, they come out and they beat them up and they say, uh, we know Jesus, we know Paul, but we don't know who you are. And they have authority over these guys. But Paul had authority over the demons, and he was um, mandated by the Lord to cast out the demons. So at the resurrection, though, Jesus disarms the demons. i got a few verses that tell us that. Colossians 2.15, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Uh, the apostles, I want to read a few of these verses to remind us that they have uh, authority over demons. It's in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. We've already read that. He appointed the twelve so that they'd be with him and he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. In Matthew chapter 10, he sends the twelve out and he says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leopard, lepers, and cast out demons. And it's Acts chapter 19. Let's just read that real quick because it's a really interesting story. And I guess I'm trying to make the point here that uh, we aren't mandated to exercise demons. The church today shouldn't be doing that because there's no instruction on how to do it. All right? The apostles uniquely were able to cast out demons. Jesus, of course, can cast out demons. But that's not something I believe that the church or the Christians are to do. Um, and demons cannot possess a Christian. I've said this many times before, but we have to know that. Demons completely unable. In fact, uh, rather than Christians, we should not be scared of demons, actually. They're scared of us because we have God, the Holy Spirit, in us. And there's no need for a Christian to be scared of demons. We do have to be alert to the way they work and the way Satan can lie and sort of be the ruler of this age and his influence and the things he gets us to believe. But Christians aren't ever going to be possessed by a demon. Dan, yes. That's actually one of the questions for those of y'all that are considering uh, ACDC certification. One of the questions on the exam is, is there any cause for a biblical counselor to cast out demons? Uh -huh. And of course, you know, you could say no and be right, but they want a page and a half answer. So you got to go into a little bit more with that. Uh -huh. But, um, huh. um, you know, it's interesting, though. I, I think the ultimate answer, like you're saying, is the way to get them out is to evangelize. Yeah. You know, 
Exactly. Uh, yes, yeah, and, and two, a couple of thoughts on that. Uh, when it comes to demon possession, uh, it's not the rule of how Satan works, right? It's sort of the exception. The rule of how he works is um, posing as an angel of light. And we'll read about that, too. In First Timothy, you read it, and in Jude, and then, um, uh, or else, I think it's... Uh, Colossians, basically he comes as an angel of light. And so it's much more effective for him to lead people astray when he appeals to something that's sort of half true because he's actually the author of all lies. And I think of the whole, um, like what Sermon taught, what Shane taught about this morning. And um, it's a lie actually for us to assume that the world is good. That's a lie. And so Christians, I think, sometimes fall for it. We want to make the world good. It's, well, the truth is it's never going to really be good, ever. It's under the curse of God. It's under the curse, and the ruler is Satan. So it takes wisdom to understand, uh, really how to understand it, but I think it's a lie for us to have any hope, let's put it this way, that there is going to be, and I used to think this way, that if I, my clever way of ruling the government would be the right way. If, if they just did what I said and the rules, I, I mean, that would be so good, and we'd all be prosperous and happy and Christians and la, la. But that's a lie. It's not ever going to happen that way. And um, wasn't it an angel of light that brought revelation to one of the largest cults? Oh, I mean, yeah, very good. Yeah, the Mormons you're referring to. Yeah, angel of light that brought their yeah, right. So I I see that more as an example of the liar, the deceiver. That sort of, I mean, he presents Mormonism as, you know, it's about family, it's about loving each other, and really it's just the same as Christianity. It's not that much different. That's what they preach and teach. And um, Satan's much more effective in that realm than. Uh, yeah, so, right, I think that that's the, the rule of how Satan works is, I believe, posing as an angel of light. And as far as demon possession goes, I want to get this in because MacArthur made a big point of this several times when he preached on his. Um, he thinks, I agree now, that these people who drown their children. You know, the Jeffrey Dahmers of the world that kill and eat people, he thinks they're demon-possessed. He thinks that that is an example, possibly, of demon possession, where people are so macabre and so dark and so wicked. It's beyond what we even depraved humans even 
can think of, uh, that, that is an example in this day and time of people who are demon-possessed. And I think that could be true. Because you read about some of these stories, and it's just horrific. And it kind of reminds you of this guy here. In, uh, I think Hollywood portrays these people as being demon-possessed. They might have just read these 20 verses and said, oh, that's you know, Carrie and Stephen King's. Anyway, but the point is mainly that uh, Satan most likely uh, works uh, as an angel of light. It was, um, yeah, it's 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 15. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So, doctrine of demon would just be something that's a lie. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. So, uh, I want to get to, remind me, I want to get to John chapter 8 before we leave. So, some remind me of that, because I think John chapter 8, is, maybe we'll get to it next week, but is an example of how Satan influences uh, our current world. But let's, get, let's finish up this verse in uh, chapter 5, verse 14. I want to finish these last few verses so we can get to the sort of heartlessness of man and the depravity of man. It says, the herdsmen, in verse 14, ran away, reported it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed. So now the man is completely changed. And he lists it. Sitting versus running around, terrorizing people. Naked, streaking around in the tombs, scaring everybody. Now he's sitting. He's clothed before he was naked. Someone must have got a cloak for him and, and covered him up. And he was in his right mind versus a maniac. The very man who had the legion. All right, so they see this. What would your natural inclination be? I mean, especially as a Christian, you see, wow. <laughs> Praise God, look at Complete metamorphosis of this guy. Wouldn't that be your reaction? Praise God, how did that happen? He was scaring the whole town for years and screaming night and day and hollering. and. Uh, but... What do they do? They became frightened. And then it says, those who had described it to them, so this must be the apostles or the people who were there and saw it, described it to them, how it happened, and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. This is Jesus they want to leave. They say, oh. So they're scared of Jesus, and they want him to leave. They don't, and I guess they want the demon guy there to stay. So uh, this speaks really that Miracles cannot induce faith. I mean, I can't think of a better example of that than this. A miracle cannot induce faith. It can't. Faith is a changed heart by God. And these guys saw this miracle. They, they were sinful. They hated God because they're sinful, and they want God to leave. And they want, they, it seems like they'd rather have this crazy guy run around than God. Yeah. Right. More happy with that. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Um, and I guess for us, praise God, 
because he's gracious to us. We, we don't have that reaction because we're saved, hopefully. But um, this, this, I think, speaks to the depravity of man, the heartlessness of man without God's saving faith in our hearts. And a couple verses I have to read, John three nineteen and 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world. This, I mean, think of it. The light came into the world. The light shone in these dark tombs. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, Satan is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And one more verse I want to read because it shows that... Uh, you know, Jesus knows miracles can't save people. He knows that. What's most important is preaching the gospel. And when he sends out the 70 in Luke and they return, it's Luke chapter 10, verse 17. It says, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. That's a great image. So he sends them out and Jesus sees Satan being hurt falling from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, referring to demons, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. This is uniquely, I think, to the apostles saying, you have authority, you're not going to be injured. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. So he's saying, don't, the miracle is great, you're casting out demons, but don't rejoice in this compared to that the spirits are subject to you. So, I'm sorry, let me read that again. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So, salvation is much, much bigger and much better than even these grand miracles that the apostles were able to perform. Uh, let me carry on. Verse 18. You guys don't have to go quite yet, do you? Okay, verse 18 through 20. As he was getting into the boat... The man who'd been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. So this is a wonderful end to the story. This guy, is, he loves Jesus, of course. He's imploring, can I please go with you? You saved me. I was tormented. It was awful. No one else would, could help me. No one else would help me. They all ignored me. Please, 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 can I go with you? And it's interesting in the story, it's the only request that Jesus doesn't grant. So the demons say, can I go in the swine? Okay, you can go in the swine. There's another request that he grants earlier on. I can't remember what it is. But this is the only request he doesn't grant. Okay? He, he did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. So the first missionary in Mark, actually, is the demoniac. And he goes back to this whole area of Decapolis, and he starts proclaiming, to everyone what the Lord had done. And it, we'll see when we get to chapter 7 of Mark, Jesus revisits that, and people run out to see him. Obviously, it seems, they must have learned about Jesus from this fellow who had gone back to his hometown and told them all about him. So even though the people in town come out and see Jesus, and they tell him to leave, in a way he doesn't leave, this is like a foreshadowing of how Jesus works throughout history through evangelizing, right? He doesn't really leave because he sends his spirit really through this evangelist to um, 
proclaim the truth to all the people there, the Gentiles who didn't know anything probably about God. So, any questions about it? If you want, just put it in your memory banks. You want to learn about demons. If this is the, these are 20 verses. Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. You can learn a lot about demons, how they uh, submit to the Lord and their nature and how they work, uh, how they're knowledgeable, how they're powerful, how they're the picture of evil and darkness and hatred and lies and everything else. These are the verses you would go to. Yep. As I've like studied this passage, it struck me just like the image of all the pigs drowning and how just like horrific that would be to witness. Like mm-hmm. I think I just read over it and I'm like, oh, and then they drown. But like watching that would be really disturbing. Mm-hmm. But I think when you were talking about why would he send them into the pigs, I think it shows his mercy to this man yeah. that you are worth more to me than exactly. all of these yep. swine. But the people were opposite. They were mad because he killed their pigs. Yeah. They had no thought for this man who's been suffering, you know, all these mm-hmm. years. But it just shows you the priority that God places on man and that he saved this one guy, but he killed all these pigs. He allowed them all to drown. Um, so just that is that a great point. Me. In the commentaries I read, there's a lot of people who make an issue with this, with the pigs. And the right conclusion is what you came to, which is it's a demonstration of how much God loves a person despite the economic consequences of losing all that bacon. That's terrible. <laughs> but, uh, and then the whole, you know, 2,000 pigs drowning, it is a pretty awful scene, but it just highlights what this guy was dealing with, uh, highlights Jesus' power over the demons, and the pigs don't matter compared to humans. And MacArthur says wasn't really that much of a waste because MacArthur says they probably went in there after him and pulled him out and they had all that meat. I don't know. It would be weird for me to do that, but MacArthur thinks that's maybe what happened. The turtles had to eat too, though. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, all right, I know we're running late, but I do give me three minutes. Flip to John chapter 8 because I, I, uh, I have always struggled, and praise God, as I teach through this, I learn more about demons. I never really had my finger, my hands around what demons were and where they came from, how they worked, etc. But it's helpful to distinguish demon possession from Satan's power still on earth, right? And I think in John chapter 8, you can see an example of how Satan is still really powerful on earth. And give me a second to find it. Uh, this is when Jesus encounters the Jews and talks about Abraham. Yeah. Um, okay. Chapter 8, verse 39. They answered and said to him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, If you're Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham didn't do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born fornicators. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God, for I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil." 
and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? He who, hear, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you're not of God. And then they answer him and say, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So the point I'm trying to make here is, this is an example to me of how Satan probably still works. So the, the Jews, the teachers, we are sons of Abraham, we are holy, we are right, we love. No, it was a lie. They did not because God was right there before him and they are trying to kill him. And then they call God a demon. So this is um, an example of how Satan is still very powerful, I believe, in this earth is simply getting people to believe lies. And the best way to do it is to give a truth that seems a little bit, a lie that seems a little close to the truth, but when you follow it out, it's a big fat lie. And so this is where Christians, I believe, are to be sharp, you know, be self-controlled and alert, alert, because your enemy, the devil, he prowls around and he's looking for ways to devour us, and the way he does it is by distorting the truth. He like hasn't, He hasn't changed that since the garden. Right. That's right. Yeah, the half-truth, with, with, yeah, when he spoke to Eve. Yep. Okay, we've gone long. Thank you. Any, any questions? No. They were begging not to leave. I mean, not that that made them go and see this, but... Yeah, so where did they go after the pigs drowned? Well, I mean, I'm no. just saying, why would you even drown the pigs? Like, why wouldn't they just be like, okay, and leave the pigs? Because they are about death and oh. destruction, and, and that's their reflex, sort of, is kill something. Send us to drown pigs. I mean, that that's the gist of it. I don't have a specific answer. I think it's a good okay. question. But... uh. Two, they like to possess, apparently, living things, temporarily, but I don't have a good answer for you, except that they like destruction, they like death, they wanted to go somewhere else, they didn't want to go into the abyss, um, and I don't know where they went after the pigs, but they didn't die, because the demons don't die. They, they like, live eternally until they get cast into, in fact, even when they're in the lake of fire, they live. Sorry, not a great answer. Any other no, questions? <laughs> All right, well, thank you. We'll see you next week.